Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. About uh, work and rest and, uh, and, and rhythms that sort of help us kind of sustain uh, life together as, uh, as people who are wanting to build ministry and build our families and and to grow uh, in him a little bit, but at the same time, uh, as a society or as a culture that's just a little bit weary and a little bit tired sometimes. Uh, my, my last uh, couple of months has been uh, spent up in the woods, really, for the large part. Uh, I took, uh, as, I, as I do for most summers, I know, it's funny, as I do for most um, summers, I'll take myself right off of the preaching schedule for the summer, uh, but uh, this summer I just unplugged completely for the first six weeks and just uh, got out of the office and uh, tried to get into the woods and really, you know, not completely unstructured time, some time of study and, and, uh, and prayer. But a good part of what I was sort of looking into was just for my own sake and my own spiritual health, uh, trying to uh, understand uh, the dynamic between work and rest and how to do sort of work with passion and intensity and, uh, and, and with the love that I have, I would tend to lean on that side, sort of maybe uh, borderline workaholic side uh, because I'm really passionate about what I do. And then to how do you balance that out with uh, Sabbath and rest and, and time away and make all of those things work together so that you can be over the long term a healthy and, and productive kingdom purpose person. And so listen to just a ton of different resources, read uh, a bunch of stuff. I read some really encouraging books while I was away, like a, a book called um, Leadership Pain by Samuel Chand. There's a nice uh, encouraging leadership uh, title for you. And, uh, you know, didn't see it coming, like smacked in the head kind of book, all these sort of things that surprise you feel in leadership. And then just some really good stuff on, on Sabbath and rest and just uh, trying to engage with that. Um, because yeah, ultimately, if you look at our lives, if you look at every one of us, what we want essentially is for our lives to be, for the most part, just up and to the right. You know how like a stock chart, you want it to go. But of course, I'm pointing this way, but I should point this way because I'm not facing the screen like you guys are. But sort of you want the chart to be going up. You want it to be uh, gaining in value. You want to be uh, growing. You want to be your kids be better at sports, you want them to get better grades, uh, you want a better career, better house, happier kids, more fun, a little bit more money, more time, more health, more security, and all of those things, of course, assuming that they're not into the, this is an idle category, all of those things are like basically pretty good things. I think it's okay to want for yourself and for everybody on the planet to have a, a more secure home to live in, uh, for people to be able to have uh, good food and good health and all of those things. So that desire for more, that desire uh, that sort of drives us forward to work and to accomplish the things we want to accomplish. Uh, it's essentially good for the most part. Of course, there's unhealthy dynamics as well. We'll talk about those a little bit later. Um, and the same is true about church life, right? It's true about uh, life in, in the kingdom. Uh, we want that to be up in the right too. We want more engagement with people, right? We want uh, more evangelism. How many would like to see one or two more people uh, saved? That be okay with anybody? That be that be all right? We'll take that. More baptisms, more outreach, more miracles. How how many of you would like it if we get our like percentages up on the healing prayer thing just a little bit? Like not that we track these things statistically or anything. I wish we could. I'm worried that way, but we don't. But I think I would like to, us to move from like six or seven percent 
uh, to maybe 7 or 8%. I think that would be just, just great. I think Jesus had a little bit better record than that, but we're not going to compare ourselves uh, too much. Uh, but uh, we, we want to see that stuff happening, right? We want to see all of that going, all that going. And that's, again, good kingdom stuff. Although for a pastor in particular, it can be an idol. You've heard about pastor numbers, right? What happens when we all go to conferences and people ask, so how big is your church? And I would say, oh, 400. <laughs> which I don't actually, I try not to lie, but I would sometimes, depending on who I'm with, maybe state how many people would be like on our register rather than who would show up every Sunday morning. You know, there's ways that you can sort of play with these things and remain within the bounds of truth. Now you gotta, and, and we as pastors, we gotta, kinda, we gotta kinda watch these things a little bit, right? Because we have uh, all kinds of false motivators and all kinds of struggles with, with that kind of thing as well, right? Uh, a big challenge, but the bottom line is, is we want the church uh, to grow. There's this beautiful image in the scripture scriptures uh, for Jesus' church, like for the, for the bride of Christ, right? Uh, we see so many uh, great images, but this peace and revelation, let us re- rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's part of my ministry and part of your ministry is to try to make this, uh, this entity that is the church ready for the return of Jesus. It was granted uh, for her to clothe herself with fine linen, uh, bright and pure. And there's another area of preparation that I think is absolutely essential for the body of Christ and that is that she's got to pack on some pounds uh, we, we, we want the bride of Christ I think Jesus wants her to be a big big woman like Jesus wants her to be a big big woman right he wants her to be huge right uh, we want the church to grow we want the church to grow, right? We look at, I know I'm shoveling, I'm gonna be in trouble here pretty soon, but we, but doesn't, isn't that what he wants? We look at this number 29,000, 26,000 is actually the number we looked at uh, last fall or sorry, earlier in the spring, and we just sort of crunched the numbers with the demographics and looking at the area and the townships in our area and looked at the number of people who might be attending church in our region versus the number of people who have uh, no interest, no connection, uh, no spiritual engagement whatsoever. And there's 26,000 people within easy driving distance of this church that God is completely off their radar. We want to see those people grafted into the kingdom of God. And so we want to do that. How do we achieve it? How do we make all of that happen? Uh, we carry a huge amount of vision for that kind of uh, thing. Um, but the only way to make it happen, as far as I can see, you know, barring circumstances beyond our control, us doing our part and God doing his part, what does it require to grow the church? More prayer. More time, more maybe intensity in terms of focus, uh, more giving, uh, more staffing, more effort, more sacrifice, more volunteers, more attendance, more work. Like our part, more work, right? And, And work is a good thing. But how many of you are really excited about working more on church? Right, work's a good thing. Work's a good thing for your family. Work's a good thing in the church. Just looking at some scriptures, uh, those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who choose to play the PlayStation all the time have no sense. Uh, it's not exactly what it says in the scriptures, but I'm just throwing it out there as maybe a th- Xbox. I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, this is crazy, this is New Testament stuff. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith. That's pretty strong language there, isn't it? 
And we understand like work is a complicated thing. This is not simple. There are people wrestling with disabilities and all kinds of different struggles in all of that. But for the most part, if you're able-bodied, there's a call to be faithful. There's a call to be working. If we're an able-bodied church community, we're called to be working to build the kingdom. The kingdom of God advances forcefully and forceful people lay hold of it. There's something about our intensity, there's something about our drive, there's something about our passion that's important there. But let's ask the honest question, how many of us are excited about more work? Either your work in your workplace or work uh, in your school. How many of you are really excited about homework starting up? Not a lot of teens here, but yeah, there you go. How many, yeah, how many of you parents, like how many of you parents are really looking forward to the spring science fair project that you all do? Right? Right? Those of you who have young kids don't under, understand that yet, but it's really your project and it's really you that's graded on it. Um, and so I am almost guaranteed to get at least a B plus on my science fair project. I'm not sure about Toby, but I'm going for at least a B plus. Um, the problem with all of that is, with, with, if I was just to leave us with a sermon, okay, everybody just work harder, let's get it all done. Um, the reality is many of us already feel sort of chronically overtired, overcommitted, uh, and overwhelmed. Reality, in terms of where the average person is at in our community uh, here in Carlton Place, uh, where people are at in our society. Um, just looking at an employment study, there's a bit of an old study from 2012 done by Karen Leland. 54% of people feel overwhelmed by expectations on a monthly, monthly basis. In terms of how that question was defined in the study, reading it in a little bit more detail, uh, that many people would have had a moment during their workday when they would have felt like emotionally overwhelmed and unable to actually connect with another human, like close your door and cry for a while in your office. Overwhelmed. 29% uh, of us feel as though at least a quarter of your time is spent doing work that is a waste of time. Have you ever felt that in your job where there's a part of your job description, something you have to do? You're like, how does this contribute to the company at all? How does this contribute value to society at all, right? It's something that just that people feel. 21% of those who are, who are like technically chronically overworked experience symptoms of depression. 21% of people who overwork experience like clinical depression, diagnosable depression, compared to like 8% in the general population. So if you're overworked, you're much, much more likely uh, to wrestle uh, with that. And 89% of people uh, just simply feel like they cannot complete their work with their, in their allotted working hours, which means they're taking work home and trying to get it all done at crazy hours of the day. It's a challenge for, even for me as an employer, as a pastor, it's a challenge for all of us to set reasonable expectations and try to work uh, within them. Um, as a pastor, uh, and, and I think my staff follows me in this, we try to schedule times that are like Sabbath days off for us, but my days when I'm like, I just, I'm going to be smoked on Sunday if I don't spend a little time in my sermon on my day off, then, then I'm hooped. So I have to learn how to structure my life in a more disciplined way in order to allow space and time for the deep kind of rest that we need. Because nobody else can fix that except for me. Right? Nobody can adjust those expectations for me. We're gonna talk about that uh, later. Uh, technology has changed the workplace in a dramatic way. Uh, we can work anywhere and anytime, so we work everywhere all the time. 
right? Your work arrives at your phone at night. It arrives at your phone if you pop, you know, I, I've changed one little pattern. It's one little thing I've learned over uh, the course of the summer and some of this reading. I used to really just get up in the morning and I'm a pretty early riser. I'll get up at 4 a.m. and I'll kind of stumble, you know, out of the, the bedroom. And the first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll grab my phone in the morning. It's a bad idea because there's 16 emails waiting for me. Maybe I should do something radical like pray. I've heard that's a good thing. I've heard that's a good thing. You know, uh, so, so there's ways to kind of uh, work on the way technology uh, causes troubles for us. The way data flows, we're, we're subjected to constant interruption, even when we're at work and focusing on, uh, on work. Uh, you know, the, the, the phone is always binging at you or emails are always coming up. So it's really hard to uh, work in a focused way on a task that's in front of you. Uh, for me to carve out time just to work on my sermon, I have to turn off my notifications. I I have to close my email program and I have to close my messages or else I, I simply just end up doing email all day. And I think that's probably a lot of your experience in your workplace uh, as well. Diminished focus is a challenge. Uh, Real-time data is measuring our productivity. And I should say, it's not, this is not just something that applies to, to office people. I was talking with Gord uh, earlier. Gord is a new fellow that's moved into our community. He's purchased a dairy farm. I was telling him about my, my uh, cousin's farm out in Western Canada, and he has a tractor for plowing the fields. And plowing fields should be like the most chill thing you can do. You just drive straight, and these are huge fields on Saskatchewan, not even these wimpy little one acre, you know, 100 acre things. This is like miles. And, he, and what he's done for, for him is he's installed a PlayStation in his tractor. And the GPS drives the tractor while he is playing first person shooters. <laughs> right? And checking his email and on Instagram. Right? So this is not just people who work in offices, but no matter what you're doing, uh, you can set the world up to interrupt you all of the time, and it can be fatiguing. Gord has not set up a, uh, a PlayStation in his tractor. He's, he's going to keep it low-tech, and he's going to stay sane, and we're grateful for him. So thanks for, for setting a good model for us there. Uh, Real-time data measures your productivity, uh, makes your work less human a little bit, um, and, and it diminishes job security in some ways because... A company can see like instantaneously if a, if a department is productive, and we're seeing this happen in the states, uh, in particular Canada as well. Though, see whole departments like just be sort of determined like non-productive. We're going to just cut all of these jobs and we're going to outsource them somewhere, and we're just not as secure. We work under the fear of losing our jobs uh, a lot of the time because business models are designed now to adapt so quickly. It's not as true in small business, but in in large business, that's a challenge. And add to all of that working stuff, increasing competition for post-secondary educational spaces. Uh, I talk to parents all the time who are like looking at their kids younger and younger and saying, man, we really need this kid to get great grades to be able to get into university. And I'm pretty sure grade two coloring is not going to uh, make or break your university career. But we see this fear that kind of lands on parents as they're trying to push their kids uh, to get those good spaces, to get those good jobs. Economic climates force us into situations where it's almost impossible to live without two wage earners in the family, right? This is something that Stephen Harper used to point out, uh, and he would actually correct people, would say, the economy is doing awesome, like, look at all the jobs that are out there. He would say, 
the economy isn't doing awesome because uh, now husbands and wives are both have to work. When I was a kid, this is Stephen Harper talking, when I was a kid, my mom stayed at home with me and she made me lunch all the time. My dad worked and we were able to have a holiday. We were able to go on vacation. We were able to own the vehicle we owned and I still had my mom. The kids under my economy that I'm running right now don't have their moms. There's something missing. There's something broken uh, in that. Um, obviously, you know, questions about mom, dad, work, all that kind of stuff. But uh, increased pressure uh, to care for elders and increased just marketing pressure that just drives us all the time to consumerism, right? So we are people who are frazzled. We're people who are sort of constantly tired. We're constantly under this burden uh, to work. And sometimes it feels like this. You look like that when I'm saying, so how about volunteering for kids ministry and attending home church on Sunday nights? <laughs> right? Is that what it feels like? Like, I don't have time for that. How can I pull that off? How can I find space for that? How can I find space for community? How can I find space for these things that will refresh me? How can I find space for things that will build the church? How can I find space for things that will care for the kids on Sunday mornings? There's so much pressure on me and so much pressure on my time and we feel that in a huge way. But I think there's danger for us in just blaming the externals. And this is a piece where I had to begin to grapple, uh, where the Lord began to deal with me at a pretty deep level as I was pulled away this summer. Because I have a tendency to blame circumstances or blame externals or blame uh, pressures that I, I, I see that are outside myself, and that's just something that we do as humans. We always blame something outside of ourselves. Uh, but we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that really drives us to accept these conditions? that we're living under. Uh, a woman named Judith Shulovitz, who uh, she wrote a great book on the subject a little bit later, but I'm pulling from an article uh, she wrote in the New York Times uh, book review, something that uh, one of Timothy Keller's podcasts pointed me to. And she identifies the problem like this. We can start to deal with externals, but there is an abiding human problem that has always been there that needs to be addressed. The machinery of self-censorship must be set down, must be shut down to still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. You repeat that phrase, the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. That thing that's inside of us, that's inside of you, that says that what you have is not good enough. What you do is not good enough. What you have achieved is not good enough. It is guilt work. It is the need to work to prove yourself to yourself and to others. That work, underneath the work, makes all other kinds of work incredibly weary. That work, that need to prove yourself that drives all of the other work that you do, makes you incredibly weary. And that work is never enough, and that work is never done. That's the inner thing that drives us to perform in areas that we don't need to perform in, that drives us towards idols of performance that don't need to be a part of our makeup, that drives us to set priorities that shouldn't be our priorities. 
Uh, our work is critical and it's meant to be rewarded. But one of the truths that we have to come to grips with is that it doesn't all become uh, and depend on us. It doesn't all depend on you and not everything is under your control. Your success is not 100% under your control. You can't 100% make it happen no matter how hard you work. And you don't get to take 100% of the credit for it when it does happen. Uh, we see this kind of thing just so simply, and it's reflected time and time again in the Old Testament, time and time again in Proverbs. But here's just a beautiful piece in the writings of Paul to the church in Corinth. He says, I planted and Apollos watered. Now we know how Paul planted. Paul planted with drive and with intensity. He worked as, as a tent maker. He taught in the synagogues. He was a hard-working, intense person. He planted with focus. He planted running as though to get the prize. But God gave the growth. I planted. I worked my tail off. But God gave the increase, and every farmer knows that, right? So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the increase or the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. But it's all, uh, in terms of it actually bearing fruit, it's all in the hands of a sovereign and mighty God. Uh, the picture I have there, I just put it in, in, in a small form. I should have given it to you bigger. But it's a picture of a storm coming across the prairie. And one of my experiences as a kid growing up, up among farmers was uh, seeing uh, people sort of living with the ebb and flow of weather and how that affected uh, the way things went for them. They could have a terrible year and be going to insurance to find enough money to buy seed to plant the next year. You could have a year of bountiful harvest. And my uncle was this incredibly hardworking Russian farmer who worked with diligence, who sowed his seed, uh, who knew he was doing, uh, who did it incredibly faithfully. But there were moments when I saw what was really important to him. And I remember sitting one time uh, in my uncle's uh, dining room with a patio door and looking out across the prairie and seeing these dark clouds coming across the prairie and just literally listening to him praying that the storm would come his way. Of course, we didn't want hail, but we wanted the rain to come. The crops needed it. And we prayed it in, and I literally began to see the water falling and hitting the dust on the ground, and he's catch that moment where a drop of water hits the dust and a little puff of dust comes up, and eventually the ground is soaked, and eventually the ground is saturated, and I'll never forget my uncle jumping out onto the back deck of his house and literally, Woo! Yes, Lord, let it rain! My conservative, calm Russian uncle knew how to dance. He knew what part of his life God needed to do. And we need to learn to live with the understanding that we approach work with the humility that we can work and work and work and work. But it's God who gives the increase. Another important thought from the scripture for us is that work uh, is better when it's worship. I'm just looking at this uh, little text in Colossians. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily. But work for the Lord. Uh, we so often uh, work for the accolades. We work for the praise of men. We work for uh, acceptance in our workplace. We work for the kudos. We work for the respect. Uh, we work for the wages. We work for all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things that we do that get our, our bodies out of bed in the morning to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. But the bottom line is, is that all of those things will at some level be empty and they will not be enough. And sometimes the accolades will be criticism and sometimes fault finding. Sometimes the accolades will turn to dust. And in that moment, you have to know you haven't been working for men. You haven't been working for people. Uh, you've been working for the Lord. And that's what lets us work heartily. And if we look at that word heartily in the text, it's like heartily with joy. Like we're meant to have joy in our work. We're meant to have joy in our labor. We're meant to love it. That's what we're built for, uh, doing it with passion and doing it with joy. And the only way to have true fulfillment and true joy in it is to wake up every morning, to get into your car, to drive down the highway, uh, to go into your office, wherever it is you are, and realize that it's not your employer that has called you there. It is your heavenly Father that has called you there to be faithful. And then you can do it as worship. I remember my first job that I really, really hated. I was slinging feed in a feed mill. And if you drive in on Highway uh, 7 in towards Ottawa, you'll see this uh, defunct feed mill that's uh, sort of beside the highway. Well, that was one of my first jobs, maybe, maybe a few down the line, uh, when I was sort of uh, just, uh, just at the end of high school. And the man that worked there, he was a wonderful person. Um, <laughs> he was a hard driving guy. He was, he, was, he was just a really hard guy to work for and understand you want to put feed in a farmer's truck as fast as you possibly can. But he was a driver. He was a and I hated it. I hated it. I, and I liked hard work. I'm used to doing hard work, but something about this situation, I hated it. But you know, in those moments when I was in the back of the feed mill uh, organizing things or mixing up grain, I still remember actually uh, the smell of mixing horse feed when the molasses would go into the feed. Just that smell of molasses mixing into me is just an amazing smell. I love, I love the smell of molasses. But uh, some of the jobs there were, were not fun jobs. But I remember having moments when I was trying to endure this of just being able to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I would make up lyrics. I'd go, Lord, I'm feeding your horses. <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, just making up lyrics about chickens and stuff, but, but God's chickens. So, you know, like there's a way of turning this stuff uh, into worship and there's a way of, of taking the things that are hard and doing them as unto the Lord. And that's what we long for. And, and to be honest, if you, I mean, this is just a plug for some of what we do at OVV. Like if you are looking at the volunteer things that we're calling you to do, and we are, we are passionately calling you into kids ministry, passionately calling you into, into doing the work of building this community. We're passionately calling you into uh, home groups. But if you look at those things uh, as work, 
in the same way that you look at the other jobs that you're doing, you're, you're going to have a hard time having joy. But those are things you can do that are directly called, directly connected to the advance of the kingdom. And, and, and I'll be honest, what I'm asking you to do, I'm hoping it's a little easier to find joy there than in the feed mill. Just saying, like there's some great and beautiful people on the teams that we're calling you to work with. And we'd love for you to be invested in that kind of thing, to choose the things that are fulfilling, choosing the things that are connected to the kingdom. And then just this last thought as we sort of, uh, sort of wrap up and, and lead on towards what we're going to talk about next week. Uh, really the inner self-reproach that we struggle with can only be dealt with through the cross. A sense of completedness to your work, a sense of fulfillment in it, a sense of joy in it, a sense of satisfaction in it, a sense that your identity is secure, a sense that you're loved, uh, that sound of the Father's voice saying to you, behold, this is my child whom I love, with whom, I, whom I'm well pleased. This comes at the cross, and this comes at this moment. Uh, in John chapter 12, 28, it describes uh, the last moments of Jesus' life. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, all was now finished. That's not a little all, that's a macro all, that's a big all. To fulfill the scriptures, all of the scriptures. He said, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine vinegar stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And if you need to look to anything in your life to find a sense of fulfillment, a sense of completeness, a sense that you are loved, and a sense that uh, the work of your life has been accomplished, it has to go back to this moment where Jesus accomplished it all for you. Regardless of your failings, regardless of your imperfections, regardless of your brokenness, uh, Jesus took all of that, all of your sin, and he laid it on himself, and he died for you. It was finished in that moment. And every day when you come to the end of the day, and you're tired, and you're weary, and you've worked hard, and you need to close your eyes, and you need to be able to say, I need to turn my mind off, and to stop working and rest in this moment. That moment on the cross is the moment to go to. Because in that moment, all work of all works, of all works, of all works, of all of creation was finished. And when you need to decide, am I going to get up this morning and come and worship with my community? I feel tired. I don't have the strength. I don't have the energy to do it. All of that weight of the last week of work that you're carrying with you that makes it impossible to feel like you can walk restfully into the Sabbath. You can look back to that moment and say, no, no, no. All of the stress and strain and pain of work that I've been carrying with me that is behind me. It is finished. I come into Jesus' presence without my job. I come into Jesus' presence without my brokenness, without my fear, without my shame. And all of that self-reproach and all of that guilt and all of that stuff we carry with us has to get nailed to the cross with him 
or else we simply cannot rest. We simply cannot do Sabbath. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, is how to do Sabbath under the cross. Not Sabbath under religion, not Sabbath under uh, the law, but how to do Sabbath under the cross. We're going to look at this passage uh, from uh, Luke chapter 12, I want to say where Jesus was walking through the grain fields with his disciples and they were picking grain and they were eating it, going from one place to another on the mission and finding rest. And Jesus explaining it all to his critics by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's where rest comes from, when he becomes our Lord. Let's stand up and pray together. Lord, we're thankful for our working lives. We're thankful for uh, the stuff that you've called us to do, the good things that you've called us to pursue. We're thankful for this church and the mission that we share. We thank you uh, for the people that we're called to reach. We feel sometimes overwhelmed by the task of even caring for our kids and, and fulfilling our responsibilities to our employers and all of that, uh, Father. But we bring all of it, we bring all of uh, the angst, all of our weariness, all of our tiredness, and we just say that, that uh, the fruit is not completely under our control, it's, it's under your control. We absolutely lay down our idols. Would you cause us to be people to pursue the good things that you want us to pursue, to pursue the kingdom things that you want us to pursue? And would you heal uh, the inner murmur, the inner brokenness, uh, the inner guilt that is meant to be left behind at the cross so that we can walk each day into our work and each day into Sabbath that we're meant to take uh, with freedom and with joy, trusting you, full of faith, receiving grace. Lord, protect us from uh, a religious Christianity that just doesn't know that you carry it all. We preach the gospel to ourselves again. You died for us. You accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished in the cross. Now take our lives and, and use them in freedom and in joy. And we'll use them in worship. Call us to what you want to call us to, God. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.